Welcome to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. Um, today I am here, I'm Ashley here with Willow and Mr. Cooper, who is the father of um, who we know of as Cole Summers on Twitter. Um, and um, I will let Willow take it away. We're going to be chatting a little bit about Cole's life and work um, and um, his legacy. So go ahead, Willow. Thanks, Ashley. Um, and yeah, uh, I think most people listening will be familiar with uh, with Cole Summers and and the story uh, surrounding his, you know, his his life and and death. And I think that um, yeah, we're we're extraordinarily lucky today to get um, to get to have his father here to just talk more about what Kevin was working on, what his plans and dreams were, and um, how how some of us might be able to take that into our lives and try to carry on the work that he was he was he was planning to do and that he was doing and you know made an incredible start on um i guess before before we get started with going sort of into a, a deep dive into those plans i'll just give a very brief overview um for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with with his story which is uh so so cole summers was a um a 14-year-old uh, boy on on Twitter who had created an account, and Cole Summers was his pseudonym. Um, uh, his name was Kevin Cooper, um, but he was just this incredible, incredible kid. He had been uh, homeschooled, so sort of unschooled his whole life, and was just like one of these one of these people who was like ambitious and driven, like 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 more than one in a million. He was just he was just incredible. He was um, uh, working on a host of projects. Um, the latest of which had had to do with uh, water conservation and regenerative agriculture. Um, but he was passionate about a whole host of things like uh, business education and um, uh, homeschooling and unschooling for for kids. Uh, he he started learning about Warren Buffett's um, sort of thinking processes when he was like six years old and uh, started his first business at seven. He was just um, doing doing so much and. Um, he, uh, he just, uh, just tragically died in June in a, um, in a kayaking accident. And, um, the whole sphere of, uh, Twitter and the internet and people even farther, uh, have been just, just really, really blown away by his work and really shaken by his loss. And I think, I think his story has really touched a chord with people. And I think it is, um, there's something just so uniquely inspiring about his life. And um, I know I've read his book uh, like twice all the way through in one sitting at this point. Um, and it's just every time it leaves me like inspired and like completely uplifted. Um, and he had just, just so many things that he was going to do uh, and so many things he had done in such a short time. So um, we're going to get into the meat of those things today and talk a bit about all of this stuff with the person who knew him the best. Um, we are so, so lucky to have his dad here. Uh, so welcome, uh, Mr. Cooper. Thank you. Um, so I'm trying to think of, of where to start. I mean, I know it's so hard to, um, so hard to, to know where to kick off, but I guess um, you had posted, uh, you had posted a couple of videos about 
sort of just what it was like to work with Kevin. You you had a, a, a video of him um, like dancing, shoveling dirt off the back of his truck, which which was, I think, very charming and was very captivating. But um, it seems like he just had this incredible, um, in, like incredible energy and zest for life. Um, what, what, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's like, well, I guess, oh, like he he saw the world like I think like nobody I've ever met um do you want to talk a bit about his his sort of outlook and maybe where you think some of that came from um uh, I'm gonna be straight out honest with you. I have no idea really where it came from because <laughs> nobody nobody else I've ever known um had the kind of drive and positive outlook in the face of anything uh, that that he did, um, he just you you almost couldn't make him think negatively. Um, and I mean that video you're talking about, yeah, his uh, he was trying to attend to some road repair on his ranch, and uh, I was driving the truck. Because I can't do much else, I'm disabled, but I can drive, and that was that. And helping him research was really my main role. Um, and so there it was. It was uh, you know a hot July summer, and you know in the southern part of the Great Basin Desert down here. Um, it was afternoon time, and he just he would get a song, whatever. We have no idea what song, but he would get a song in his head and just dance while working. Um, I mean, and so there he was shoveling gravel on a hot July afternoon, you know, dancing as he worked. And that was how he was with, with everything. He just, everything had a, everything had a positive outlook. Somehow he, he found a way. Um, and it, it kept him going. I mean, and, you know, the Energizer Bunny couldn't keep up with him. It was, he would start out at, you know, six or six in the morning and wasn't uncommon that, you know, he would keep going until sometimes two and three in the morning. Wow. We actually, had a, we, we actually, you know, started making him take melatonin because we wanted, you know, we were worried you're not sleeping enough. Um, you know, we had, we'd taken him to the doctor and, and that was our family practitioner. She's like, yeah, you, you really should sleep more. But she also turned and explained to us, she's like, not everybody has the same requirements. And no, four hours doesn't seem like enough. But they're, you know, for some people, they really can thrive on very little sleep. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, And that was kind of him. I mean, he would. He would be up working on a book or or something like that or reading a book or studying, you know, late, late into the night um, and then be out, you know, working his ranch or working with his animals all day long. It's remarkable, uh, but it part of me, part of me looks at him and I'm like, if you had so much like momentum and success at such a young age, like if you think about the energy like young kids have and then you started like actually projecting some power and influence with that 
energy. Like I, I can imagine that it would be sort of infectious and like feed on itself a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it, it did. Um, I mean, we we would try our best to keep up with him. Um, you know, just you don't want to. You get to where it's like I don't want to feel like an underperformer here. And <laughs> but when, you're next, when you're next to next to him, yeah, um, it was really easy to to feel like an underachiever and an underperformer. Yeah, um, but he would never make anybody feel that way at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he just a relentless energy to to get things done. Um, you and know, so he wouldn't hear he would be he would be asking neighbors, "What can I help you with? What can I come do?" And especially older neighbors who, you know, there's a lot of retirees who do little small you know, homestead farms out here and, you know, so he would go over and, and do stuff for them and they would just be sitting there like, mm -mm. even when I was his age, I couldn't keep up with him. <laughs> you know, yeah. one, one thing I would add is um, something about the homeschooling and unschooling uh, philosophy that um, he talked a lot about. Um, I do think it's worth noting that um, kids in their, um, you know, teen young teen um age you know sort of adolescent age are just full of so much energy um and yeah. a lot of times it's either zapped from school or it's put into something like video games where like they just get obsessive about you know yeah. something like play um it was just so cool to see in kevin's case um this kind of like endless boundless energy um, directed towards something, um, you know, like business, like agriculture, like, you know, the things he's passionate about. So um, that was really inspira an inspirational part of his message. I will, I will say though, Ashley, I've, I've been around a lot of the like unschooling kind of types and, uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sort of different ideas packed into that general philosophy, but, um, yeah, I still, I still think, you know, like oftentimes like kids are, you know, <clears throat> interested in their little niche projects and they sort of like, you know, work along at little things or do volunteer stuff in their communities. But yeah, I think, I think the, um, the energy is one thing, but like, yeah, his, I think his ambition was just like, I've, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that they feed into each other, I'm sure. Um, oh, they did definitely feed into each other. Um, yeah, he he would joke and you know look, and he'd you know, hold his fingers up, you know, real close together. He's like, I'm just a little bit ambitious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he he knew, of course, that his ambition was um, excessive. <laughs> well, he, he seemed he seemed to. Um... Because he was like, it's funny because he like, and you had talked, you had talked about this, uh, about um, him being worried that his book would come off of like him seeming like he was, he was bragging or, or something. And I know that yeah, he was very concerned that it wouldn't, like, he, he's like, I don't care how many hours I put into this. He's like, I'm never going to do it. If, if anybody says they, 
I don't feel like I'm trying to brag here about what I've done. And he's like, I'm just not publishing it or I'll unpublish it, whatever. He he was very, very determined and spent a lot of extra hours working with his writing ghostwriter mentor he was working with. Um, yeah. Very determined that he the book, he wanted it to inspire other people to see that they there was more that they could do. Um, and yeah, well, sorry. That was yeah. his goal. Uh, and I was surprised at how well it, it seemed like he hit it. Um, you know, because yeah. it's how you talk about starting your first business when you're seven or buying your first house for your 10th birthday. Um, yeah. You know, well, like that. I think he, he was really well able to um, strike this balance of like, like a, like he had a kind of playfulness, which made, which made, like he didn't shy away from talking about things. And he had like a little bit of kind of like, you know, it, like it wasn't bragging at all, but it was this sort of like, it, it, isn't it kind of ridiculous how much, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. He had, he had a way of talking about it that like acknowledged that he knew it was very unusual um, without seeming like he thought he was better than anybody. He never thought he was better than anybody, and it was a genuine belief. Yeah, uh, that was just it was there, and he he felt like he was more fortunate than a lot of people. Even though, I mean, we're we're far from a well-off family, um, and, and we've definitely had some rough times. Mm -hmm. He felt fortunate in that he. He got the opportunity instead of us going taking. We never took the approach of, well, you know, you're you're just a kid, go play and leave adult stuff to adults. It was like, oh, you want to try, you know, building an engine when you're. I think he was five the first time he he did the majority of an engine build on his own. Well, uh, yeah, I was there guiding him, but. But doing, and I had to lift some of the heavy parts, uh, you know, like the cylinder heads and stuff. But he, you know, he really did do the vast majority of that on his own. He loved it. Um, somewhere there's a video I want to share on his Twitter one day that I just can't bring myself to dig through all of it yet. Um, somewhere we've got a video of him taking a tire off a truck. And I mean, he was probably three. And he's sitting here using an air ratchet. I had broke the lug nuts loose for him, but then he's like, me do it, me do it. And trying to take over. And, uh, you know, but he's backing the lug nuts out and he pulls it out of the socket and gives it a fling. Uh, and it was really cute. That was why we were videoing it is because he would pull it out and he took the lug nut and he just tossed. <laughs> well, he had I him scattered everywhere. Uh, he, uh, he wrote about this video in his book, I think, actually. Um, yeah, I, I think he's got it on his computer. I just... Uh, yeah, well, he said, he said, you know, I think he, he wrote about that video and said, I, I'm not sure when I realized that I don't like chasing down lug nuts, but at some point, I, I but I stack them neatly now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I saw that in the book. Everything too, was that was really cute. Down. Sorry, go ahead, Mr. Cooper, sorry. Uh, he commented that he had a playful 
attitude towards it all. The dance video, I think, you know, him dancing on the, I've got, there's another video of him dancing on the tractor after doing a fence pull. Um, when he was, I guess, probably about the same age, might've been a little younger, but, uh, that was everything to him. Well, I posted, no, when I posted one of those videos, I think I said that, you know, to him, it was like a kid in a sandbox with Lincoln logs and, and Tonka trucks, except mm-hmm. he went full scale. He wasn't, you know, his sandbox was this big 350 acre, uh, ranch that he bought himself. And, and, you know, and uh, his John Deere tractor, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, he just he did everything. He did a lot of normal things, just on a drastically bigger adult scale. Um, maybe and it I... was all play. Every he made it all play, and you know, part of the drive came from knowing that you know he. he Basically, he got, certainly by the time he was 14, I mean, it was, he got a lot of free reign. Um, yeah. He really, our, our whole lives really did revolve around him and his projects at that point. It is, it is amazing that like most 14 year olds wouldn't have even had, like wouldn't have even gotten an opportunity or been allowed or, or even exposed to like a lot of the stuff he had basically mastered by that age um which is i mean it like as as i think we've all sort of talked about in various places but um like you're it's, it's interesting to think I, like i don't think i really don't want i think that the people it's easy for people to look at someone like kevin and be like look what you know look what would like look, look what kids could do if they were just you know, unschooled or whatever. And I'm like, well, I definitely think that people are definitely capable of a lot more than, um, than they do day to day. Um, but I, I do think that it's easy to see someone like that and just be like, oh, it's, it's the method, you know, it's the method or it's, it's like, it's because of this, this educational philosophy. Um, and I definitely think, I definitely think he was kind of a, a, a diamond in the rough um but but yeah I guess um maybe maybe we can talk maybe we can talk because I because I do want to get into into some of his plans um and and you know while while we have you here I know that you have more information on this because you were alongside of him uh researching researching all of this stuff um so so maybe like do you want to give a brief overview of what got him interested in, you know, his regenerative agriculture and water conservation plans? Um, I think most people probably have a bit of a background on that. And then we can get into some of the, the meat of how he wanted to run things and set things up. The, the regenerative agriculture um, really came from him trying to, you know, he just, he kind of, he, he loved farming and I mean, he literally, he obviously started a, a, you know, farm business at seven and, uh, and so he loved learning about it. And, and so just as he was learning about it and YouTube was a big part of, of his education, um, he started learning more about how you could build better and richer soil instead of 
spraying a lot of the chemicals and stuff he sees um, every year out here on on all the hay farms. Um, and yeah, he very much wanted to do whatever was going to be best long term for the environment. Um, the, the the water conservation thing uh, it was driven by dry water wells. Um, he, you know, the house he bought when he was 10, he knew there was a pretty good risk the well was dry. Um, he knew that or the world would go dry really fast um, when he got into that. And, um, you know, and so that was kind of the first exposure, you know, to, to how bad the problems the problem is with the aquifer uh, depletion out here. Um, but he went into that kind of knowing it and, um, you know, and so that it was what it was on his ranch. He had water and he, he didn't have a lot, but he had enough for the little thing. He was going to be putting a really low powered pump because it was just going to be watering goats and he knew he didn't have to pull very much. And by the time he got the fencing done, because he just started with raw land. He didn't actually buy a ranch. He saw this huge swath of of brush, basically, um, unfenced, uh, un, you know, just wild land. Um, it, it had a little bit of human damage from a, a drainage canal that had been dug through part of it, but uh, he's the one who turned it into a ranch. And so by the time he finished his fencing and he put his well in, his pump in the well, and he did that himself. He didn't hire a pump contractor. Um, by the time he got it in, he's like not getting any water. And uh, and so he pulls the pump back out, or he sets his pump all the way to the very, very bottom, uh, where he can tell that it's you know hitting bottom and still nothing. And uh, that, was, that was one of the few times that we ever saw him, you know, actually look discouraged. Um, and he was. Um, that was a pretty big blow. And it was, you know, so we pulled the pump back out. Um, and, you know, he realized the situation. Um you know, he, he did some, some trading around and, and ended up getting a new well put in that should be good at the current, you know, depletion rate. That well should be good for at least 30 years, possibly 40. Um, you know, so he knew it would last him quite a while. Um, and then, you know, as soon as not long after that got done, uh, last year, our well at our house went dry. And, uh, and we ended up living without running water for nine months. Um, that really, really affects you. There's no avoiding it. When you're hauling water and you, you don't have the ready supply of water that everybody in, you know, modern culture is so used to, it, it does. It really, really affects you. Um, and that he started learning a lot about it with the ranch, but when it hit the house, that was, you know, our third dry well in a row, basically with, with his projects. Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, he was, 
to just found a new buyer for for some of this stuff because with COVID and, and all that went on with that, he had lost all his sales for a while. And so he just found a new buyer and then no water um, for, yeah, we have five acres here at our, our house and he used four and a half of them, um, you know, pretty much. Um, but yeah, and that, that was a big impact. And yeah. he's like, there's gotta be something. So the, the water conservation and trying to figure out what can be done different, really, that, that was the driving factor. Because that's when, you know, when you realized that, uh, just how the price difference had changed from doing the well on his ranch to the one here at the house, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that he, he just realized he put it together. He's like, good Lord, what's it going to cost, you know, when one day when I have kids, you know, 30 years from now and. I have adult kids who need to drill a well, you know, are they going to be able to afford access to the water at all? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's very realistic that, you know, 30 years from now, a well is going to end up running a hundred grand or more just to put the hole in the ground. That's insane. So uh, I, I mean, wonder, right, now, oh, right now it's about, yeah, right now you, you can spend 30 grand just to put the hole in the ground wow um and i mean that that's that's a i know from last year's experience that's uh that was a hard that was it took us nine months to to be able to ultimately get a loan and, and try to come up with the money um it was a very painful year uh you know we had a lot of things that, that seemed to go wrong last year and yeah should kind of miss it right now but um so that was the motivation is is that awakening to the big picture of it and what impact it's going to have on his future on his eventual kids futures here one day mm-hmm. uh, and so that was the driving factor, but like part of it, Kevin had this way with pretty much everything. Like if you imagine a clock with, you know, 20 or 30 gears all turning in it, Kevin, and, and he actually has a wooden clock in his bedroom that he had built that does have like probably 20 something gears in it. Um, he wanted to know. Oh, how every single little gear affected every other gear separately. And like he, he would put together this kind of spider web mental image of how every little piece of everything affected every other little piece. And he looked at everything that way. Um, he, he just, he wanted, he broke everything down to the tiniest little component and how does that little component affect this one? How does it affect this one? And that was how he broke everything down in his mind. And so when he started looking at the aquifer problem, it was with that type of mindset um, that helped him break down the problem and look at it in a way that I doubt anybody else has. Um, And that helped him, you know, I did a lot of research for him, but 
like that helped him develop this plan and how to put something together that would be most importantly to him economically sustainable because he's like if you do this if you make big changes and they're not economically sustainable they're not going to last and so <clears throat> that's where i guess his, his kind of obsessive business education part really came into play is he's like i have to make this economically sustainable but he knew he wanted it to be environmentally sustainable too yeah. uh, because ultimately if the two don't go hand in hand, but it won't have staying power. Mm -hmm. One way or the other. Yeah, if it wasn't environmentally sustainable, eventually, you know, you're not going to be able to farm out here anymore. But if it wasn't economically sustainable, the changes wouldn't hold mm -hmm. um, and be able to continue going. Um, it does require human intervention. You cannot just leave the desert to nature if once people have already torn it up you have to have human intervention to restore it um, yeah well especially if people up here that sat for nearly a hundred years that are barren because humans tore them up and nobody's done the work to restore them mm -hmm. and and the desert doesn't really reclaim itself very well without that work yeah um, so so I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about like the details of what um, what the plan was to um, <clears throat> to restore um, the the aquifers um, to to do some regenerative agriculture. This is something mm -hmm. we talk about quite a bit on this podcast, where um, you know there is a strain of environmentalism that says like humans need to be out of nature, and that's not what we think on this podcast at all. We think you know it's it's very important for humans to to be a positive force in nature. And um, there were actually, I don't know if you know about this, Mr. Cooper or not, but there was a back and forth between Kevin and some um, quote unquote youth climate activists on Twitter that I um, waded into because they were saying, you know, this kid is a plant um, of Elon Musk or something like that. Um, just yeah, because he was, that. yeah, just because he was saying something along the lines of, you know, he like be, you know, being involved in in agriculture is is a pro environmental stance, which is completely correct. Um, but maybe Willow, you want to talk a little bit about what you know first, and then maybe um, Mr. Cooper can add on details. Well, yeah, I mean. I mean, I'm happy for him to kind of go through Kevin's plans because definitely has a better uh, sense of that. I guess one thing that might not be, uh, might just be useful background information for people who don't have a ton of the story is that, um, so in the Great Basin Desert, there's uh, a lot of hay farming, um, which is basically uh, not, you know, there, there's not enough rainfall and the soil is not good enough there to do hay farming without like pretty intensive irrigation. So right now, um, the hay farmers are um, allowed to pull water and they're basically running irrigation systems that are pulling water out of the ground faster than it can replenish. And I think the water table is dropping there like three to six feet a year. Um, and right. the government in response to this had created a plan basically to fallow like one third of the farms. Um, basically, um, which is, is that correct? And I know it had changed. It they had pretty, close, yeah, pretty close. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. So 
I'm the one who actually he was out working on something and he's like, find me everything you can find on everything about water here. Basically, he's he's, he's like, I want to know every little detail of like how many acre feet of water every single farm out here owns. I want to know all the legal information. So he asked me to research that for him while he was out working on something. Um, and so I did and, you know, I got all the information together and yeah, the plan. Okay. So I guess first off, I'll explain kind of how water works here. Cause I know it's very different in a lot of places here we have, and this is common across the West, but we have what's called water rights. And basically the water is property or the right to pump that water is property. Um, just like by land is and and they're separate properties so just because you buy land you can't drill a well if you don't own a water right uh, um, to to be able to get the water um, if you pump water without owning it you there there's some legal penalties um, how that works is the way the state has allocated it is that uh, you have to have four acre feet of water per one acre that you want to irrigate. And so that'll allow you to do up to 48 inches of total irrigation um, on that acre per year. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, how that gets measured though is just that. You own four acre feet per acre. And you can water that one acre with those four acre feet. Now, there is no adjustments or recognition or differences. If you're flood irrigating a rice field, they measure that as the same amount of water as if you're drip irrigating, uh, you know, some lavender plants or something that are, are anything really low water. So... There's, but there's a drastic, obvious, you know, difference in how much water you're using. Um, but none of that gets measured. It's just four acre feet per acre. So if you own four acre feet, and a lot of the, what the state does is generally says aircraft, aerial uh, views. And if they see something suspect, like if you're trying to do two acres and you only have four acre feet, they'll send somebody out to, to check. Um but yeah, there's there's no difference in that. It's just up to the farmer and whatever they're doing, whatever they're growing. Uh, as long as you have your four acre feet per acre, it, like I said, you can flood irrigate a rice field or something, and they don't measure the difference, even yeah. though you're clearly using drastically more water. Yeah. Um, and so that that was kind of the start of of the plan uh, of Kevin's plan is going, okay, well, this is how water gets measured. So I need to grow something that only uses say 24 inches or less of water a year. And as long as I have the acre feet per acre, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the end result is that I'm using less water and I don't have to deal with fighting the government to measure it different or anything like that. I can just do this as a private business and make it work. Um, 
and the the way to do that is some very good uh, grazing and browse plants for animals. Um, that most of what he found actually can do quite well on as little as eight, 18 inches of water a year. Um, but then beyond that, he's like, yeah, he said, he's like, I see why the farmers aren't doing this. He said, because if you're just grazing it this way, it's not going to be economically sustainable. Like mm-hmm. the costs are still, you're, you're not going to recoup your investment and, and so from there, he's like, okay, so the only way to make this truly work is you've got to own your products. So instead of selling just hay as a commodity to uh, somewhere else, he's like, you've got to own the end product that the customers are buying. Um, and so he realized he's got to own the processing. He's got to own the farm. He's got to own the whole thing um, from beginning to end. And the other catch, and I know I, I think he had gotten into it with somebody on Twitter about this a little bit at some point, was he knew you had to do it at scale because you got you can't yeah you can't solve an aquifer problem that spans uh, you know the Great Basin Desert's kind of big I don't even remember how many square miles but yeah you know it takes up a chunk of almost all of of Nevada and and parts of every state surrounding it yeah. Um, now there's different aquifers in different parts, but even the one here is is absolutely massive. Like you can't do this and be a small I, farmer. I think, uh, yeah, I think that there's a um, people often use sort of like large scale agriculture and like um, industrial agriculture as sort of synonyms and um, regenerative agriculture and like small scale farming as synonyms. And I think he was. I remember. Uh, I think I had actually said like, oh, something about small, small scale farming or something. And he was like, no, (laughs) like, no, we need to do like a good thing on a large scale because otherwise, like, yeah, he was, he was basically like, we we don't have time to do it small. And we also, he was also just like, the problem, yeah, you know, if he, well, like his farm mentor, um, a guy who was really helping him learn a lot, this guy's been farming hay out here for Oh, about 30 years and he's third generation um you know like he's got 500 acres i think it is um mm-hmm. he's one of the smaller ones uh, out here like he can't even it, him shutting down his whole farm he could just shut down and stop and it's not going to make much of a measurable difference it's too small mm-hmm. yeah and I mean, so like, yeah, it has to be done at a massive scale. There's no other way. If you a 500 acre farm to a lot of people sounds really big, I know. And in the regenerative agriculture movement, I know that sounds huge. Most people, you know, are there's a lot of farmers out there that are at 20 acres um, that I see that that they're doing a regenerative homestead and things like that. But you can't begin to touch the aquifer depletion problem out here with less than about 2,000 irrigated acres. Yeah. Like, yeah. At 2,000 irrigated acres, then you can affect, you know, uh, actually, I don't think you can quite affect a full uh, 10% of the problem. Yeah. So, 
you got to be, it's got to be huge. There's just no other way around it. If you're, when you can restore soil on a small scale and you can do this for the purpose of the soil on a small scale. And that's great. It's a wonderful thing to do. And he was working on that. But if you're going to attack, if you're trying to attack the aquifer problem, you've got to have a whole lot of land, irrigated land that you got the control over to make the changes on. And if you don't, you can't do it big. You can't do enough Yeah. for it to matter. You, you know, you, you're not going to get everybody on board. That's not going to happen unless he buys them out and takes control. So his plan, and maybe I can sort of say what I understand his plan to be, and you can kind of fill in or correct me where I am wrong, but <laughs> his, his plan was basically to um, start a like workers cooperative business um, where he was purchasing these and and he had like he knew which farms he wanted to purchase specifically based on like which ones he knew didn't have successors and who was like getting a bit older and might be willing to sell in the next I think like Uh you know five years or so and um and and then his plan was to basically take over these farms start doing regenerative I think like goat and turkey um ranching on on them um, maybe I'm sure other things and he had like he had a, a list of grasses that were like more uh, more drought resistant and needed less water that he was going to start sort of introducing into the area as as it got fertilized and as there was more um, more soil building up with the animal manure um, and then and then his, his idea was to start I think like processing plants on all these farms that were owned by the people who are working in them and the worker cooperative model, I believe, was to was to try and protect against like intergenerational sort of like die off or or kids not wanting to take over their parents' farms. Um, yeah. So this is it's it's you can't tackle a huge problem like this with simple solutions. Yeah. I, I guess is one way to put it. And so yes, the intergenerational thing. He looked at you know why aren't like his mentor is probably the most he's got to be the most environmentally conscious hay farmer out here um the man has has given up a lot of profits to switch to lower profit uh hay that's not alfalfa um put water sensors all over his fields to so that you know when a field has adequate water it'll he can he'll turn it off he he does he's doing the best he can But like for for this guy to convert, you know, to what Kevin would want to do with it, he'd be looking at a two or three million dollar investment. Yeah. Um, get all everything up and going, get all the protections from predators for the animals done, all the seeding done, the certified processing facilities, and, and trying to create a brand for an end product to sell to consumers. Mm-hmm. And he's. He, it was easy because this guy actually would even open his books up, you know, to to Kevin. Um, but he really wanted Kevin to take over his farm. His own kids don't aren't really interested in doing it. Um, they, his, his kids kind of go back and forth. They do come out and work it with him every year, um, but they're not really interested. That's not what they want to spend their life doing. And so he was really looking to Kevin, like okay, I really want you to take over my farm one day. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and Kevin could quickly see, he's like, there's just no way. One, nobody out here really wants to put themselves out there to try and build a branded product at the end of it. Kevin yeah. didn't even really like doing it, which is part of why he used the pseudonym and he never, all he would ever refer to is that we're in the Great Basin Desert and that was it. But to him, so to him, like getting on Twitter and all that was really, and trying to become kind of famous was a sacrifice he was willing to make. He did not enjoy it. Um, but he knew that that would have to happen. And so like his mentor, you know, just like with almost all the farms out here, like they don't just inherit the farm. I think this is a common misperception about these yeah. big farms. <laughs> it's actually quite common on big farms everywhere. It, the The next generation buys their inheritance and they might buy it at a slight discount, but they have to buy their inheritance. And so they've either got loans or they don't have full control from, you know, their fathers and, or, or mothers or, you know, so they've got a lot of debt. They've got all this investment and, in, and in all this specialty equipment and they are land and water rich, but they're not cash flow rich to the point they could do something like this. Yeah. Um, not even close. Uh, there, there's one farm out here who might be in the ballpark. Um, you know, land and water-wise, he certainly has adequate control uh, cash-wise to make this kind of change. And then the ability to try and build a brand of products to go with it. No, I don't, I don't think he would. Yeah. Um, and I mean, Kevin recognized his youth as a tool and the knowledge he gained and all that was a real tool to him. And clearly, I mean, he was building himself as a brand uh, with some degree of success. Um, so then that really started giving him more confidence. He would be able to pull this off. And yeah. so like, for example, the, the most important farm that he had targeted, targeted out of the first three is split up between three different properties. And so the first set of the properties from that, he looked at it and there's four pivots, which for people who don't know, it's the big circular irrigation. So if you look at a farm area and you see all these green circles with blank ends uh, on the corners, that's what it is. And so this one's got that five, uh, oh, actually they recently added a sixth uh, pivot there. And so there's these main four in a perfect square. And in the middle of it, there's already some livestock facilities where the guy brings in sheep occasionally throughout the year or through the winter and stuff. And, uh, and even cattle from time to time. Um, and then there's also a really big hay barn uh, right in the middle. And so Kevin looked at this and he's like, so what I can do here is fix up the, uh, I'd have to fix up the fencing, replant the fields with Siberian wheatgrass and forage kocha were, were probably the two main plants because they're easy to grow and out here. And, uh, and they provide a lot of nutrition with for very little water input. Uh, he had a list of total of I think it was 13 plants I tried to go through the plan before the interview and, and take notes and emotionally I couldn't do that so 
but I know that kochia, Siberian wheatgrass, um, crested wheatgrass, and Paiute orchard grass, those are big ones for him that could all do it on 18 inches of water a year or less. And he's like, okay, so what I can do is create a rotational, pat, you know, grazing here with and turn it into a goat dairy. That was his goal. With this. For dairy that he wanted to do with that one? And yeah, he wanted to turn it into a goat dairy. Okay. And I'm like, okay. And okay, Kevin loved when people would nitpick and find problems with his ideas and plans. He would ask for it. He anytime he came up with an idea, he would go to any he'd come to us and tear this to shreds, please. Find every possible flaw you can. He loved the, you know, learning where he was wrong about anything um, because that would let him refine and improve. And yeah, so that, that was a big part of it. And, you know, he brought that to me and I'm going, son, Gary, um, do you realize what regulations are about milk and all that? You know, this is a big deal. Uh, you're you're going to spend probably more on meeting regulations than than anything else and uh he, he grinned and he's like nope and shook his head and um i'm like okay he's like i have to brand my products remember i'm like okay and he's like so i'm not going to make any human consumable milk products at all he's like one it gives me more flexibility with my plants. I can put a salt brush out and the negative impact to the flavor will never matter. Um, so his goal with that was to take the second hay barn that's off to the side of this property um, and build basically a little soap factory out of it. Uh, he wanted to make a brand of soap, body wash, and shampoo out of goat's milk mixed with sage, lavender, and stuff like that, and market it as kind of a high-end bath products brand for women. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And so, and I'm like, okay. And so he pulled out his numbers, and, you know, the the milk was wholesale worth, I don't know, five or seven dollars a pound or something like that. It wasn't very much. Mm-hmm. And the money, do the growth, you know, he, he would have other costs, of course, but the growth revenue, it was like 200 times, you know, increase in the revenue. For the soaps. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and he's like, he's like, there's enough really pretty women out there who are influencers. He's like, I can get some of them on board because a lot of them are passionate about the environment. Yeah. And he's like, if I can get some of them on board for, you know, a cut or paying them a little bit, he's like, I can advertise the heck out of this. Then we have the end product. He said, I create more employment here for the farm. Diesel fuel gets all but eliminated. Fertilizer would be totally eliminated. Um, But he knew he had to go he had to own the entire thing because if he was just going to sell goat's milk, he wouldn't make enough money to keep the farm going. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was just that one. And like every time he came up with a product idea, he would come up. So he's got domain names. We, we were going through his list of domain names a few days ago. I mean, there's like 30 or 40 domain names that he's acquired that as soon as he came up with a product idea, he's like, I got to put a name to it. It's got to be something good that fits. And, and then immediately buy the domain name. Wow. I love that. And so like, and so for like the women's, uh, you know, soap and, and body wash and shampoo idea, he came up with the idea for the name Basin Naturals. And, okay. you know, bought the domain. He had already been working on a logo for it and everything. Um, and he knew that that right there would really help fund a whole lot of the rest of it. That if he could hit, if he could get to that point, you know, the, the revenue would, he would have the, he would have the income to start really funding uh, a lot of the expansion of this into a lot of the other farms out here. That one was, was the one he saw as kind of the, the major source of income. Uh-huh. But, you know, and he, in looking at why other farmers aren't doing this, he's like, you know, he's like, this is going to cost so much money. The farmer who owns that particular one doesn't have an heir to pass it on to. Um, I mean, he, he does have, uh, he does have heirs, but they're they're not here. They don't work the farm. They don't want to work the farm. They're gone. And does does this so, guy know what what his plan was for his farm? Um, no, probably not. I I'd love <laughs> I love. I mean, part of me sometimes I wonder if. Uh, I mean, yeah. Some I'd love to have some kind of documentary about about Kevin produced at some point and it would just be amazing to just like I'd love to talk to these people who who he had like had like detailed detailed plans for what he was going to do in their property which I know I know would probably be unwelcome for most people but it's just uh yeah it's just it's just remarkable um you know so that that to him was part of his phase one uh, he called it how he had the plan broke down um, he even bought greening the uh, greeningthegreatbasin.com because he wanted to make a documentary of it as he was mm-hmm. doing it. Um, and so he had bought that for a domain name for a documentary uh, about changing how about how how this how it's farmed. Uh, um, and so he had similar ideas that they weren't as big and profitable as what the the goat dairy part probably would be. But he had raw pet food brand lined up uh, that he wanted to have going. Um, he hmm. he had uh, shoot, I'm trying to remember some. He had a leather products uh, idea. <clears throat> oh, wool! That was a big one. He thought would do really well. Uh, oh, he was going to do. All... Yeah, sheep are are kind of big out here, anyways, and so there's a lot of sheep farmers and. But the common a common thing done with a lot of them is that uh, uh, they they pay or allow shearers to come in, shear the wool, and take it as payment for doing the shearing. And so the sheep, the, the, the farmers, a lot of them don't even actually sell their wool. Um, 
they only raise them for lambs and they sell lambs. They don't sell lamb meat. So they're not selling the end product. They're, they're way down the value chain. Yeah. Um, as Kevin loved to point out. And so he's like, nope, we got to climb the value chain. And so he looked into what it would take to keep the wool here. He's like, if all these other farmers are willing to give away wool in exchange for shearing, then I just need to hire a shearing crew and I'll have all of this wool. Um, you know, and they can give it to me. I'll keep it here. And we, you know, so he looked at what it would take to convert another hay barn into being a wool processing facility. Ah, so he was going to uh, use, he was not even going to start by having his own sheep, but just going and taking the wool. Well, the, the, or one of the yeah. first three, one of the first three target farms already has a herd of probably mm -hmm. five or 600 sheep. And so he would have had that. And, and to even acquire the hay barn, he'd have to buy that farm out. And so he would have his own sheep to help get it started. Um, and, but he's like, if I make wool beanies and maybe go advertise them at the ski resorts, and he's got an end to one ski resort now already, um, that he, he's friends with the family that owns the, the ski shop there. So he already had him in. He's like, if I start making like wool beanies and scarves and sell them as locally produced, locally raised wool, and the environmental benefits, he's like, I want to target the ski shops and the universities. Uh, yeah. You know, because the entire Great Basin Desert has some pretty brutal winters and you need them. Yeah. And so that was his goal was to try and do, keep the wool processing here and keep sales within this region of, you know, wool beanies, wool, uh, he, he thought about possibly mittens scarfs and, and beanies were their thing too. Um, and then, but he, some percentage of wool is like a natural, I, I guess just isn't usable. Um, I forget what, he, he knew all this stuff a lot better than I did. And so he's like, well, the wool that can't be processed in the final product is just not good enough quality. And he said, we compost it. We're going to have animal poop galore anyways. He said that'll actually help keep the soil softer, wool compost great. And so he's like, we'll have a composting business on the side, although I'll probably keep all my compost. Um, yeah. And so in, in each of these properties, he had been able to break down, you know, how he could use it with low water plants to livestock to an end product he could sell. His goal was to keep all his sales within 300 miles which within we have Vegas and Salt Lake City both within 300 miles so that probably wouldn't be too terribly hard to do yeah um, I think Reno's within 300 miles too it might be a little longer because of funky path for the road but um, that, that was his goals he really wanted all sales within 300 miles he, he does not like these mega long supply chains that have been built up where you're dependent on stuff that's so far away. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, so yeah, he had the wool, the one with the wool. He had, he wanted to do one with uh, turkeys and chickens and then keep just enough fields and hay to supplement winter feed. But he's like, never an acre more. I, I want to grow just enough hay for what I need to help 
our animals through the winter, not a single acre more, no hay sales. Um, because he had no interest in that at all. As far as I understand from what Kevin told me, like right now, the way most of the hay businesses are offering op operating in the area is that they produce the hay, sell it to, I think, farms and like, like cattle, like farms in China. And then we buy the meat back. Um, like, is that I, I don't think that any of the meat comes back, but I don't know. I don't know that any of the hay from here goes to China, but I do know um, that there are farms in other areas and other smaller geographic areas around here that actually China has bought the hay farms right. or Chinese businesses has bought the hay farms. And yes, they are shipping it back. Um, oh. And so... <laughs> And some of it I know goes like to uh, Chinese owned pork farms here too. Um, yeah. So that's part of it. But like we know a couple of years ago, one of the farms he wanted to buy out, we were talking with the owner, just chit chat, you know. Um, you know, and he had just picked up, I guess it was a big contract for uh, Dubai of shipping a lot of hay to Dubai. And so, wow. like, man, that's. Eight nine thousand miles away. I don't know how that's clear across the globe. Um, and so we did, we did learn a lot more. Um, part of, of his farm mentor making changes was he realized that the pellet factory he was selling a lot of his uh, his alfalfa to was actually shipping them to Japan. And he's like, I don't like my products being shipped that far. And so he's been getting more into baled grass haze for uh, for more regional uh, animals and livestock. Um, I know that during COVID, he gave a ton of hay to the Navajo Nation to try and help them out, stuff like that. But he so he's been switching. That was part of his idea in switching to lower water grass haze. Is he didn't like he doesn't like that. It, some of his products are getting shipped that far and like i said he is, he does try to be very environmentally conscious with what he has to work with yeah uh, all i have to add here is that like um <clears throat> i'm thinking of kevin's book um an ambitious homeschooler's journey and my god the ambition here is just unbelievable and it's just so inspiring because um <clears throat> quite a bit on twitter I, I interact with young people older than Kevin uh, who are feeling like um, they want to get onto some land. They want to do uh, something good for the environment. They want to have a vocation. Um, and it seems to me, and I wonder if Mr. Cooper, you'd like to um, give your own advice and maybe we can talk a little bit about how um, Kevin's vision will continue on or, or, or we're hoping that it does. But, um, you know, my advice to a lot of those people is like these opportunities are out there. I mean, I'm thinking about this farmer that Kevin was working with who's, um, whose own children weren't interested in taking over the, the farm operation. Um, there are so many opportunities like that. And you can be so intelligent about value added products and learning about the global economy and where does all of this stuff go? And does that ethically align with... Um, with my value system, um, owning all the 
the you know sort of vertical integration owning the the you know manufacturing and processing and distribution um in, incredibly <laughs> ambitious and incredibly um inspirational and so you know i think part of it is that a lot of young people in general they kind of think that um, their life should be built around a job in which they are hired by someone else. <laughs> and I think part of it is just changing, flipping your the perspective um, that kind of gets flipped with homeschooling in general is that, you know, it has to come from within you. Um, sometimes the thing in the world doesn't exist and you have to make it um, and you have to try and you have to figure things out. And it's very like entrepreneurial mindset. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And Kevin was very driven to foster that, clearly, obviously, you know, in the book. Um, and part of how he wanted to help foster that uh, was so the corporate structure he had in mind, it wasn't a lot of people do things just as a sole proprietor or they make an LLC. And they might might not even do a great job of keeping up with their LLC paperwork um, just right. It, a lot of people don't dive into the business technicalities a lot. That was Kevin's starting point was all that stuff. Um, and so him figuring out a corporate structure that would make this something that would last um, was a real was an early part of it. Um, so like all the land he was going to put into one one business and basically just charge the operating farms rent equal to property taxes. And this other business would not be owned by anybody but uh, him and nobody could change the land <laughs> um, that way. So and so he's like, and part of the lease will be that, you know, if if they if we're going to shut down a field for some reason um it has to be replanted with sagebrush and and salt brush and and all the different native vegetation has to be restored and that was going to be a requirement of the way he set up the leases the operating company the one that actually makes the products and and you know raises the animals and all, all that um, he was very determined minimum had to be a third employee owned and like Kevin wasn't driven by wealth. He had acquired an abnormal amount of wealth for a 14 year old, but that didn't drive him like even a little bit. That had nothing, it was just to him, it's just a tool towards an end goal. And so he's like, he loved when he learned about uh, public grocery stores and how it's an ESOP, employee stock option. <laughs> and, uh, He's like, okay, that model, he said, because then you're not bound by this generational thing. If, if the next generation doesn't want to farm, they don't have to. You can hire from anywhere, and they can come in and start taking ownership of this big, massive um, you know, farm company he was trying to build. Um, they, they wouldn't get to come in and destroy the land because the company that owns the land would be able to put in limitations on what could be done. Um, but the employees could come in and they could bring a lot of creative solutions, and but they could have ownership instead of just 
you know, farmhands are, uh, aren't famous for having, you know, being high paying work. Yeah. Uh, and another reason that he liked that idea is that like Kevin's farm mentor has wanted to hire him for a few years, but he can't. Kevin could run heavy equipment if he owned it or we owned it. He can work any kind of dangerous job on a farm as long as we own it or he owns it. But he can't get hired to do to like run heavy equipment by another operation until he's 16. Right. <clears throat> and uh, by trying to make it employee owned, farmhand kids could get an earlier start like the farm kids get to. Oh, okay. so farm kids get to step in and start earning good money at, you know, however, whatever age their parents let them start. Um, and all the farm hand kids can't do anything till they're 16. Any other kid out here who's not already part of the wealthier families that own these big farms, they can't, they can't get that head start. And so better Tim a lot. He knew he already kind of had a head start because of what he built. Um, and for anybody who thinks it came from us, trust me, it didn't. He was far wealthier than his parents. Um, but that that irritated him a lot that mm-hmm. he couldn't he couldn't hire a friend of his to come help him and use his tractor, right? You know, and teach them how to start using the tractor. Uh-huh. He couldn't do that. Um, and he just he thought that was a really ridiculous lopsided law. And so he's like the employee ownership option thing. He said, even if it's only a third of the farm, he he was pretty open to having like a third investor owned him keep a third as just what he deserves for his efforts. And then have a third set aside that employees can earn, earn their ownership percentage. Um, And that was likely how he would end up, you know, with the thing set up. And, uh, but he's like, if employees have ownership, then their kids can get that head start that yeah. he couldn't get, that that none of his friends out here can get. Uh, yeah. So that was a really big, big motivator in that is that he saw, you know, some of his friends who came from the right family got to start earning, you know, ten, fifteen dollars an hour at ten years old, while other friends who came from a much poorer family, well, what can they do but play video games and ride bikes? And, you know. Yeah. So that, that was a big motivator of the ownership structure idea, but getting rid of the generational debt. I mean, if, if each generation has to buy the farm, you know, buy Why? their inheritance. Why is it like that? Because farms really aren't very cash rich, I guess. Um, is it just because the farmers are in debt already or well yeah they they generally stay in debt and part of the reason they stay in debt is yeah they have to buy their inheritance part of it is I mean the equipment is if you you look I mean what farm equipment runs it's expensive yeah Um, I mean Kevin Kevin spent 50 grand or so on his tractor and it wasn't near as big as as the ones they use on the hayfields out here. 
Um, and then there's all the specialty tools for, you know, the swathers for cutting the hay, the balers, and, yeah. um, you know, they got these, uh, oh, I can't believe I'm totally brain farting what they're called now, but for, where they pick up entire stacks of bales, mm-hmm. uh, a squeeze. So they have got squeezes and even used these things are tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, most of them need to keep, you know, at least one or two semis and flatbed trailers going uh, for moving their product around. Um, you know, the power bills for running a pivot are huge. So all this stuff really adds up. And so for farmers to be able to retire, they've got to sell. So they sell to their kids who want, want to take over. Yeah. So, um, Mr. Cooper, I wanted to ask you just like, I mean, Kevin's plans for this, uh, this area were just so extensive. Um, do you see like, have you thought of extensive, extensive, um, sorry, not yet, for sure. But I like, do you see any way, like, do you see any way that things, um, like, I don't know, other ways of remediating some of the problems he was looking at or other, um, I don't know. I'm like, I just, like, I, I know that you have, um, that, you know, we've, we've been in talks about kind of working on continuing his work in some, um, some avenues, but I just wonder, I guess, I don't know. And I know it's like, I know these these really relied on on Kevin to make them happen. Um, I, like I listen to you talk about them, and I'm like, oh, I, I want to be involved in that. You know, like I want to, um, like I want to, I want to see those things happen, and I want to, like, I want to, uh, yeah. It's 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 very it's very um, sort of inspiring and infectious to to hear about the things he wanted to do because you really can like feel the possibility behind them, but. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask, like, I guess, are there any leads or do you see, do you see how things might be continued at all? Um, as far as the aquifer plan, I have no clue. Somebody with a whole lot of tens of millions would have to show up and want to carry it on. Yeah. Uh, we can't. Uh, I mean, that yeah. was, there's just no way our family could. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I there is a family who is trying to carry on, who wants to buy his ranch and try to keep that going. Um, they've got a they got a big down payment for what they're they're trying to do here, but it sounds like financing is gonna you know financing the rest is gonna be a struggle. So we've been taking money from the GoFundMe and reducing the price of the ranch for them dollar for dollar. Yeah. Um, and we are doing that. Uh, I know I talked with you a little bit on the phone yeah. about that possibility a week or so ago. Um, and we are doing that. So it, it, that way, no. we're not trying to be greedy here. We're just trying to get ourselves moved to a farm where we can continue. Because yeah. continuing here is hard um, anyways. But emotionally, it's just paralyzing to be outside and try and do anything. Yeah. Um, the, the gap in the mountain where the reservoir is where he died. I mean, we can see that from every spot on our property. And, and we used to think it was his most beautiful view ever. And now we freeze it up and parallel, we're just, we're paralyzed. We can't, 
we can't keep going here. Um, so, but this other family wants to take over the ranch and try to continue um, a lot of, of what Kevin had in mind for it. Uh, they actually live closer to it than, than we do. Yeah, um, and I have a better view, so they can actually monitor the ranch even closer than Kevin was able to. Um, and so we're really trying hard to work with them and help them take it over while also getting the funds we need for the other farm we found um, that that meets our needs amazingly perfect. We have we have a lot of medical concerns, uh, but want to try and keep up going in the best way we can and yeah. so yeah we did find a place that has the mental health care that our other son needs like in walking distance for for most of what he needs yeah. uh, it's really close to a little town um, and the house would be very easy to make wheelchair accessible for me and that was a big plus yet it has enough land to actually farm um, and and like water. Hard to find. Yes, and and it has uh, no shortage of water. That, that won't be a concern there. Um, um, I'm I'm wondering if um, if there's anything you can think of at the moment um, besides the GoFundMe that we can add along with this episode um, for people to get involved or um, you know to to you know keep track of of what might come of Kevin's various plans. Um, right now, following his Twitter account at B. Cole Summers is where uh, I'm trying to keep up, keep everybody up to date on, uh, or up to date on what's going to happen with his ranch. Um, I, I know Willow and I and uh, another lady are hoping we can get a really good website put together um, with his farm plans, um, but emotionally for me to. This, this is really hard. It hadn't even been two months yet. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're trying. Anybody who's read the second to last chapter of, of his book would know why we're trying so hard to do what we can to keep things going. Um, I, I think that the best thing uh, right now, and I could say the most sort of the, the most time pressing thing is, yeah, if, you know, if we can attach the GoFundMe and um, that that is sort of like just making it work financially for for this family to buy the farm that's looking at it is a pretty big deal because it means that, you know, it's not going to go to somebody looking to put up huge apartment buildings or just do water intensive hay farming. It's uh, it's or, or worse. We, we've had two different people uh, throughout the suggestion of making an off road racing track. Because Kevin kept all the sand, he kept all the sand dunes natural and intact, and and all this stuff. Oh my goodness! That, yeah, we we're we're pretty much ignoring them. I don't think they're going to try and make an offer, yeah. but God, I hope they don't. Um, as bad as I want to sell that place and get over and that fund us getting to the new farm. Yeah. Um, I don't think emotionally I could handle knowing that was happening. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I would. I think I would decline the offers regardless on that one, but yeah. that suggestion got thrown out and we were just like, um, no, we're not going to show you the property. We're, <laughs> we're not really going to entertain anything you could talk to us about right now. Oh. Uh, yeah, we're, we're 
we're pretty well ignoring that one. Um, but we, uh, we need to get moved on and we need to try and get to a farm that is more suitable for us to do within our abilities, but not at that price. Uh, yeah. So we are, we're like I said, we're, we're basically all the GoFundMe now, money now is trying to work out the balance of helping this other family keep his ranch going, which also lets us start another regenerative farm that is at a way that meets our medical limitations and needs. So, yeah, um, yeah. and of course, the way Kevin structured his companies, the his publishing company with his book, he set it up so that automatically, as soon as the balance in the, the publishing company's account reaches where there's no fees for having the account, it does an automatic transfer to fund his farm company. Um, and that, that was why he got into the books. And so, yeah, we, he's got one more book he finished writing, but it needs illustrated. We're working on that. Well, no, we're not. Um, we're wanting to get working on that. Just, yeah, some things are really hard to try and move forward on right now. Um, but we are, we're trying. Um, and then he's got a third book that he had started on. We don't know how far he got. I've got a lot of his notes. I don't have his mind maps because those would be on his computer. And uh, that's kind of like the bedroom. It's still something we're not ready for yet. Um, but he's starting a book he wanted to title Entrepreneurial Unschooling, where he could teach all the principles of that it would take for someone else to to do similar, but what works in their area and for their lives and their strengths versus their weaknesses and stuff like that. Um, and we're going to try to get that book finished for him. Uh, um, we don't know how far he got. He, he, he made a lot of notes. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'd say backup copies of our text history. Um, Cause he would text me a lot of his ideas and uh, his little save it for self notes. He would put in our text history. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but, uh, I think um, I think there's going to be a lot more stuff coming up. Hopefully, in the next, uh, you know, in the next year, Ashley, um, to kind of continue some of his more concrete plans. But yeah, I guess the the really sorry the the, the thing that's being focused on right now is is trying to get Kevin's family moved moved to a property that they can manage better and um, get get his ramp sold. So. Um, well, we we really do. If somebody can come up with the money and you know and wants to carry on the massive scale project to try to salvage Jacques for here and show that yeah. this can work, and Kevin recognized that just phase one was probably going to cost him between forty and fifty million dollars. And here, you know, we're we're a family living and and we've got nothing but fixed disability income. Yeah. He had income, but we, we never touched it. Everything he ever earned is still sitting in his company. Um, you know, and it, it was beyond ambitious to, to come up, you know, to do that. But that's why he got into the books. He, it's why he wrote that movie. Anybody who follows him on Twitter, I guess, would know that uh, he tried writing a movie that he could film really cheaply uh, and try to get it on Amazon Prime. So that it would help fundraise to make the farm. He knew he had to have an outsourced side source of revenue. 
mm-hmm. um, and he knew it had to be something. It couldn't be a second job. It had to be something that could produce very large amounts of revenue. And something like a book and and movies really fit that bill, um, which is where all that really started coming about. Um, was the, those projects were just meant to fund the farm ideas. So that was the whole purpose of those. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me to wrap up the the main, you know, what what is there anything we haven't covered or is there a main takeaway um, for people who are inspired by by Kevin's journey? Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, maybe just some some thoughts about, you know, this this brilliant star that shone so bright, um, you know, and and was a, a sort of a beacon for for a lot of us interested in in um trying to be as ambitious as possible um to to you know realize our own visions and values um you know any sort of takeaway thoughts or anything that we haven't yet covered that you wanted to say um either willow or mr cooper um uh, kevin if anybody who's read that book knows he was a very firm believer that most people are a lot more capable than they realize than, than what they've been taught to believe they're capable of. Um, and, and that I know would be a key message Kevin would want people to take away is that, you know, you've been, people have been taught that, that there's limits, too many limits to what they can do that. And a lot of these limits are wrong or, you know, false information. Um, that, that most people are far more capable than they realize and that a lot of the environmental problems are things that you don't have to wait on politicians to try to solve. And in fact, politicians sometimes come up with the wrong answers. Um, there's a lot of action you can take on your own. And he was a you know, living example of that. I love that. That's so inspirational. Yeah. Willow, did you have uh, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that really just keeps, I kind of keep cycling back to is that like, yeah, look at, you know, I think a lot of our limitations are imposed by almost a kind of like selfish attachment to like how we think things are supposed to be or how we uh, like want to be seen uh, and if you like if you just start doing stuff and don't like you know definitely think about it but don't don't get caught in this sort of like cyclical self um, sabotage that I think most people do almost almost unconsciously but there's there's just like I don't know every every time I sort of really dive deep into thinking about Kevin's life I'm just struck by like how much like just how freely his energy flowed and how much he was just like it just felt like he looked at the world through these like really clear eyes that was like oh I, he was just focused on like okay what needs to be done and how am I going to do it and if you really strip it down to that like and really asking yourself the question of like what needs to be done um, I think that so much opens up and not, and not going about like, oh, well, I could never do this. So I, you know, there's so much that comes into it that I think is motivated by fear uh, when we think about these things. 
but um, yeah, I guess, I guess just be humble and know that what you think is possible is, is probably wrong. And there's, there's probably a lot more, probably a lot more possible uh, in the world, but um, yeah, I hope, I hope, you know, as, as updates come up with, with the, the projects that um, um, uh, Kevin's dad and, and, you know, many of us are trying to, trying to help continue. Um, maybe we can, maybe we can reconvene and, and talk about them also. Yeah, that would be lovely. Um, okay, well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, uh, Mr. Cooper. I know it's not um, easy to talk about these um, topics, but I think it's really inspirational for a lot of people. So I really appreciate it. Um, and of course, both of you um, <clears throat> for for helping Kevin on his way. Um, I know that you're both in the dedication for his book. Um, and that's really cool because, um, you know, he was extremely ambitious um, and seemed like a a unique person in the world, but he also had a lot of um, supporters and, and who saw that in him and helped him um, a lot. So that's important too, that we um, are, are supportive of one another's dreams in that way. Um, okay, uh, I'll I'll wrap it up there. Um, thanks again, um, Mr. Cooper, for coming on. Um, thanks, Willow, for organizing. Oh. This was lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. And yeah, thank you, Mr. Cooper. Mm -hmm. Thank you both.